Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and I'm very pleased to introduce my guest, Vitold Rybczynski. Vitold is a writer, a critic, an architect, and emeritus professor of urbanism at the University of Pennsylvania. You may know his writing from his pieces in The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, The New York Times, or Slate, or perhaps from one of his more than a dozen published books including Home, A Short History of an Idea, and A Clearing in the Distance, Frederick Law, Olmsted, and America in the 19th Century. We at Yale University Press are thrilled to be publishing his new book titled Charleston Fancy, Little Houses and Big Dreams in the Holy City. The book is nonfiction of a narrative and character-driven sort. It's set in Charleston, South Carolina, and it chronicles the activities of a small group, about a half dozen of individuals, none of whom is a trained architect, but who nonetheless complete some fairly extraordinary architectural and urban development projects. Vitold, thank you for joining me today to talk about this book. It's a pleasure. Your interest in telling a story about Charleston seems to have taken root when you were there or near there to give a lecture at the invitation of a real estate developer named Vince Graham, who's also one of the important characters in the book. Can you tell us a little bit about Vince and about the trip? Did you realize right then that you might in fact be starting to research a book or did the project grow more slowly over time? It grew slowly. I, I first met Vince completely by accident. My wife and I went, uh, it was a spring break, and we wanted to take the week off and go somewhere a bit warmer than Philadelphia, and we we drove to Beaufort, South Carolina, largely on the strength of a movie, whose name I can't remember now, uh, which which was shot in Beaufort and showed these beautiful old colonial houses. Uh, and it just seemed like such an interesting place. It's just, it's a very small town on the coast. Uh, so we did we did go there and i remember we were i was sitting in the hotel room looking at one of those pamphlets that the board of the, the chamber of commerce usually puts out with ads for various local businesses and one of the ads caught my eye and it said it was a picture of a, a sort of uh, a gazebo by the water and and it said they had it right the first time and i realized it was it was a Ad for a real estate development, and I thought that's kind of interesting. It, they didn't show any pictures of the development, but I, the idea that somehow it related to history was unusual because most real estate developments are not like that. And so, we went out there, and I met Vince, who was the actual developer. He was then, I guess, in his early twenties. He was about the age of most of my students. And he showed us the project, and it was a very it was a very interesting project because Beaufort is a colonial town where the planters from inland would go in the uh, in the summers when it got very hot uh, to take advantage of the climate, uh, the cooler breezes from the sea. Uh, and so it's a very old town and a very charming town with narrow streets and 
houses with porches close to the street. And Vince, Vince's real estate idea was that the most expensive part of Beaufort was the actually the oldest part of Beaufort. And he thought maybe you could build a new development that was less expensive, uh, but new houses rather than colonial houses. Uh, and what he did was basically duplicate what he saw in old Beaufort, which was uh, he measured the street, he measured the sidewalk, he measured how close the houses were to the street. And as much as possible, uh, of course, building houses which were contemporary, but which also had porches and pitched roofs and uh, windows, uh, very conventional looking houses. Uh, he he tried to replicate, and he, he was very successful, and I was impressed by his project. And so that was how, not how the book started, but that's how I met Vince. And through Vince, I met other people. Uh, several years later, he invited me to give a talk. He was, do, he, would, he was doing a project, a much bigger project, outside Charleston in Mount Pleasant. And he had organized series of lectures for actually for the home builders. He wanted to, to sort of educate the home builders and show them what the difference was between kind of building good traditional houses and, and really bad copies. And so he asked me to give a talk. This was probably five or six years later. Uh, and then through him, I met other people uh, that I wrote about later in the book. and. I, I found myself going to Charleston several times for conferences and uh, meetings and various things. And uh, I remember at one time we were sitting around with George, who's one of the characters in the story, and, and Vince. And George was telling us what it was like to be a builder when he started in Charleston. He was building, he was renovating old houses, and Charleston was a very the, the, Charleston had started to revive, but he, he was didn't have the money to buy expensive houses. So he was working in a very poor part of the city where, which, where there was crime and drug dealing and various things. And he was telling us how, how he sort of dealt with this when when they first started. And I remember Vince said to me, "You know, this you really should write about this." And I thought it was an interesting story. I didn't write a book for a number of years, but I, it was sort of percolating in my mind. So eventually I got around to it uh, and kind of told the story both of what they had done and also what they were doing because they were still active and they were doing projects in Charleston. And Charleston, in the meantime, had, had sort of revived. Uh, it had attracted a lot of uh, jobs and young people and to, as well as tourists and and so the city was really booming and is booming and uh, so there was a demand for housing the the university had grown a lot and so they were quite busy essentially building and rebuilding uh, houses in old neighborhoods in the center of Charleston I that interested me and and I found their stories were interesting, and, and the background was interesting because they were, in a sense, trying to 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 not destroy the old city, but to rebuild the old city in, in ways that suited the, the way we live today. 
You mentioned George, who is George Holt, who, if I remember correctly, you met initially at the lecture that Vince had invited you to come down and give, which was on the Italian architect Andrea Palladio and interested George for a very particular reason. Can you can you tell us about that? Yes. George Holt, uh, I, while I gave the lecture, George Holt and my wife were talking. And after the lecture, I was signing books because I'd just written this book about Palladio. And my wife said, you should talk to George because he's built a Palladian house. And I thought, I wonder what that's like. It's a lot of people today use that word pretty loosely. And so a Palladian house could, could almost be anything. But he was an interesting person when we talked to him. And I thought it might be interesting just to take a look at it. Uh, it was in the suburbs and it was a house that he built for his sister and brother-in-law. Uh, so the next day we we drove out there, and uh, it was in a suburban development, sort of a 1970s, quite conventional-looking ranch houses and split levels. And in the middle of this was actually a, palladium, a little Palladian villa with with columns and a pediment and a sort of temple front that was it was still under construction. It hadn't it wasn't completely finished, uh, but it was it was very beautiful and particularly in a way that very few Palladian houses are, modern Palladian houses. Uh, I had, In writing the book, I visited a lot of Palladio's villas, and one of the most charming things about them is that they're very rough. They're, they're sort of classical farmhouses. That, that on the one hand, they, they have this Roman columns and porticos and details, but on the other hand, they're farmhouses, and they're surrounded by farm buildings, and and they're very roughly built. And that it's one of the nicest things about them. They they feel very real. Uh, and modern houses tend to be very slick and very polished and precise in their details. Uh, and George had managed to build a house which actually had some of the qualities of Palladio, a kind of roughness. Uh, everything wasn't perfectly smooth and the plaster was rough and he he showed me how he had used linseed oil and to make the concrete sort of not just different colors but kind of splotchy looking so that it it not not that he was trying to age it but it had the the quality of an old building which is not perfect it's always imperfect uh so that was how i met george and then every time i would visit Charleston later, we would I would get together and see what he was doing. He had built an extraordinary house for himself, which was Byzantine, with domes and columns and arcades. It, it looked like something out of a an old Hollywood movie about the East or one of those Douglas Fairbanks Jr. movies. Uh, and so I I got really intrigued by him because he was. He was a builder, not an architect. He wasn't trained as an architect. He was a contractor who had started designing things. Uh, he had started by renovating houses, but eventually he had started building houses, uh, which required design. And, and his approach to design was so different from an architect because since he was the builder, he didn't have to make drawings of everything. He could sort of make decisions as as he was building and he could he could instruct the laborers and the carpenters and masons 
if he wanted something done roughly, he could do it that way. Uh, it's very hard for an architect who's one step away from the building process. Between the architect and, and the carpenter, there's always the contractor, uh, and he has to explain everything in drawings in order to get prices so that the so that the client can be sure that they can afford the house. And so it's a very laborious process, whereas in the past, architects worked much more directly with craftsmen and builders, uh, and they could try things out, they could experiment, uh, and that's what he was doing. So in a funny way, he was he had sort of reverted to more the way Palladio himself built, uh, which was he would you know, s scratch things out on the ground for the builders and make rough sketches for them, and then that, that's what they would do. It was a it was a very different process than the modern process, which is much more bureaucratic, which it has to be. It's a legally and so on. But as a builder, he could sort of sh short circuit that, and the results were very unusual because that's not how we normally build anymore, uh, and and so that. That was an aspect which, when I did start to write the book, I wanted to to communicate to people because it's it's sort of an unusual way of of thinking about building. Yeah, one really lovely line in the book <clears throat> in reference to George and his Palladian houses. George's suburban house was the most Palladian house I had seen outside Italy. Um, do you think that that was largely or entirely due to the kind of short-circuiting you just described? Or do you think any of that was intentional on his part, that his admiration of Palladio and the well, extent to which he... it was intentional. It yeah. wasn't... Uh, he, he was quite... He had, he, because he liked... Uh, George has an, an unusual background. He was born in Spain. His father was in the Navy, and his mother is actually Spanish. Uh, and so, as an arm, I guess a navy brat, he lived in many places around the world. And one of the places was Istanbul. And and later he got he he went back there, and he he loved the old architecture of Istanbul. But one of the things he liked about it was precisely its age, the fact that it was not new, that it was crumbling, and in and also in many cases, you know, the old builders were not so careful about things as a as a modern builder is so you know the the columns were not all lined up precisely the things were not always perfectly symmetrical they might be a few inches off and and he started to try to put that quality into his own buildings uh not to make them artificially old looking but to to give them that quality that he liked about the old buildings, and and so it was it was actually quite intentional on his part, uh, and and I, I mentioned in the book there was an architect called um, Addison Misner who built in Palm Beach in the 1920s, and uh, in those days Americans could the American dollar was very strong, and you could go to Europe and buy all sorts of parts of old buildings, I mean, in entire rooms and ceilings and fireplaces. And and he built buildings in Palm Beach, but using wrought iron and tiles and uh, doors and all sorts of details that he brought over from mostly from Spain and Portugal. And they're extraordinary buildings because he also, he wanted them also to look old and he would, he would, 
age them. And if you you go to Palm Beach, uh, it, it's an extraordinary sort of environment because you really think you've, you're suddenly in Italy or Spain or somewhere. That you're not in Florida anymore. And George, you know, 50 years later or more than 50 years later, was sort of doing the same thing in some ways. It was he wasn't building. Uh, I have to say, he wasn't building luxury houses. Uh, most of the classical or Palladian houses, that modern Palladian houses, are extremely expensive, uh, very luxurious houses. George builds very small, very modest houses. Uh, it's, it's, he's building for a completely different sort of market. They're not many of them. Uh, he and his partner were renting out to students, and so they weren't they weren't fancy houses, but they had a lot of thought in terms of the details and the the sort of character of the architecture. Yeah, one of the recurring themes and one that struck me at moments to be somewhat paradoxical is <clears throat> the ambition and enterprise and and often success of the people that you describe in this book in various combinations with both their off-the-wall creativity and their pragmatism. Um, how much is that just uh, the serendipity of the particular people who happen to be doing this kind of thing in Charleston at this time? And how much of it really relies on the fact that they're largely self-taught when it comes to making homes? I think the story would have maybe been different if Charleston had not become a booming place. But when they started, it was not the Charleston that we know today. They started in the 80s. Uh, in a very rundown area, uh, uh, the Charleston population of Charleston had shrunk a great deal. Uh, I talk about the history of Charleston because, you know, the, Charleston was one of the richest cities in the United States in colonial times. It was the fourth largest city after Philadelphia, Boston, and New York, but it was a much richer city than those cities, largely the result of the slave trade and because it was a very important port for for cotton and rice and, and various things that were grown inland. Uh, the, of course, the Civil War changed all that. And, and after the Civil War, Charleston became a complete backwater. It was, a, not a, it was a very small city. It didn't grow. It didn't develop any industry. And it never bounced back in the way, say, Atlanta did. Or, or or some of the other southern cities, it it really became a little uh, a little provincial backwater, with the, with the one exception that the people who lived in Charleston were very attached to the city, and v very intent on saving the architectural and the buildings of the city. So unlike many cities, which in the 60s, really, we destroyed so much of our cities because we built suburbs, we built highways through them, we built shopping malls outside them, the, the main streets died, and the city sort of disintegrated. That never happened to Charleston. The amazing thing when you go to Charleston is you realize there are no skyscrapers. Mm. There are a few taller buildings. They did build sort of 10-story, maybe 11-story buildings, but there is there are no office buildings. There are no skyscrapers in the city. It's a city primarily of three- and four-story buildings. Uh, and partly that was the result of, of the fact that they didn't, that it was economically so uh, 
sort of unsuccessful for a long time that nobody w- w- wanted to build skyscrapers, but also eventually they they realized that, that what they had was really special, and they they. Uh, Chaucer was the first city to institute a historic preservation district in the, the 1930s, uh, literally the first. So the Charleston, uh, I forget what it was called, the Charleston Code or the Charleston way of doing things is what then influenced other cities like Philadelphia and um, New Orleans and various historical cities who wanted to save their uh, historic areas. So uh, it became really a pioneer, not because they had very much money, but because they really loved their city. And uh, Charleston, the, the families, the colonial families of, of Charleston are, are still all there. Their descendants are there. So it's unusual in that regard that they, there's a kind of continuity there, uh, which which doesn't occur. But in terms of your question, if Charleston had not boomed, I think George and his friends would still have built things. They would have been different. Um, Charleston now, the, the the land values went up, so their, the nature of their work changed. There was a lot more pressure because things were so expensive of, of how to design things uh, and to sort of squeeze things into the in, into these projects. Uh, so the, the the character of their work would have changed, but I don't think they, basically it would have changed. I think that uh, they would have just done something a little bit different. Uh, right now, the part of the story is, is, is a project that they, they all kind of end up working on together at the end of the book. Uh, and one of the complications of the project is that it, it's now so expensive to develop things that you need to be very patient in terms of how long it takes to get through the bureaucracy and the permissions and the various requirements, which was not the case when George and his friends started. So so there have been differences, but I think it was there. Uh, there were two or three things about the way they worked, which are unusual, but which were, I think, part of their success. One of them was they didn't have a big master plan. They they started and kind of went went along, and as as the project grew, uh, it changed, and they reacted to changes. Uh, in other words, it, their projects grew the way our cities grew, uh, which was organically. Most American cities didn't have master plans; they they sort of grew as a result of people coming and adding on to them and building larger buildings and modifying the buildings. And, and that's how their projects happen. So I think that was a quality of their work, which is what makes it, I think, very successful in the end. Because one of the things about large projects that is always a little bit depressing is they're always planned. They're perfect. Everything is thought of and then built all at once. And that makes them very artificial. Uh, it's not the way cities normally grow. Uh, cities grow incrementally, bit by bit. And then each bit modifies the previous bit. And it, it, they, they eventually get tied together by various things. But uh, a large project sort of tries to do that all at once. And that's very difficult. 
Two large projects that you chronicle in your book um, that kind of bookend the Charleston boom um, are t- uh, co- you know, one you call Tully Alley, um, which started in the 80s, I believe, and was overseen by George Holt and some others. And then the one you just spoke about more recently, you call Cat Fiddle Street, um, that both involved buying property and building houses and creating streets and infilling city blocks, which is, seems like a fascinating thing to do. Um, can you talk about some of the specific challenges faced, the, the different kinds of challenges faced by yeah. the folks involved with Tully Alley versus the folks who subsequently, decades later, were involved with uh, the Cat Fiddle Street project? I think the Tully Alley project, the biggest challenge at the beginning was that although the land was inexpensive and the houses were cheap because most of them were empty, I mean, all the houses that they initially bought were, had been derelict and abandoned. Uh, it was the in, the environment, on the other hand, was not very, was neither safe nor particularly supportive of of trying to attract tenants or, or home buyers. So I think that was their, initially, the, the big challenge was that they couldn't take safety for granted. Uh, they used to hire policemen to park their cars at night outside the houses they were reno- renovating in order to discourage drug dealers, because that, that was who was primarily there in the evenings. The the, the neighbor had, had basically emptied out. People had had abandoned houses and moved to the suburbs, uh, which were safer and and not particularly cheaper, but simply safer and, and more vibrant communities at that point. That part of Charleston was not doing well at all. So that was, of course, very different later. The Catfiddle Street project, that wasn't an issue at all. There were There was all these young people who were attracted to Charleston uh, Charleston has one of the largest sort of startup high tech communities in the country for a city of its size. So we think of it today as a tourist city, but it's also a city with real employment. And it's a city where if you're a young techie of, of some sort, it's very attractive to live there. It's small, it's walkable. There's a lot of other young people, which is one of the main attractions of urban life, is to to meet other people like yourself. Uh, so it's a it's a very active place. Uh, the challenge is probably much more economic than uh, the the land which uh, on which Cat Fiddle Street builds was I think half a million dollars, and it's about the same size as Tully Alley. It's there. It's about ten houses altogether, uh, but the economics have, have entirely changed. Of course, the economics of Charleston have changed too. So people expect to pay more rent or pay more for a house. The construction costs have gone up. Um, the complexity of building these infill projects. We uh, architects and planners are are always s- support the idea of infill. It's a very attractive idea, uh, but it's a very complicated idea. It's it's much harder to build a house where you're trying to squeeze in between other houses than just going to the suburbs, you know, and digging a, a foundation on a, on a, in a field, on an empty lot. Uh, so, so the complexity of getting things done is, is more, more challenging. 
uh, and that that was a that was a big part of the story of a cat fiddle was just getting getting in there and putting these houses in them and dealing with all the urban issues that surround it. Um, both, I think both projects in the end will be successful, but in, in some ways they're both also very different. They're, they, they're, the environment is different and the, the situation is different. One of the people who is very involved with the Cat Fiddle Street project is a man named Reed Burgess. And one of the homes that winds up being constructed as part of that is his own home, um, which seems seemed to me in reading the book to have some pretty amazing design decisions, partly as a result of the infilling process. Can you, um, you know, pick, pick some of the most amazing ones and describe them for us a little bit? Yes. He... Uh, first of all, he he had this dream of building a Palladian house. He'd always wanted to build a Palladian house, and uh, the Palladian houses are not huge, some of them, but they're much much bigger than anything you could fit into a tiny lot in in the infill project in Charleston. So he and George, because Reed was was a musician, he wasn't an architect. Uh, he had he was interested in architecture and he had studied it and read about it but he he from a technical point of view he needed help so he and george worked together on this and uh they they went to a uh, an exhibition in new york city uh, about palladio which had a lot of models and drawings of palladian villas and one of the villas that attracted them was a villa called saraceno which is a a very a relatively small Palladian house. Uh, I, I'm particularly familiar with it because I I actually stayed there. It's a house you can rent. It belongs to a British heritage group that restored it and then rents it out uh, for short periods to 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 visitors. Um, but even the, even that was too big. So what they did was they basically took the portico of the house, which is the entry porch, and made that the model for their their design, which was really just three arched openings with a pediment on top. Uh, and George convinced Reed that if you build a house, you really should provide some rental unit because it helps you with paying taxes and paying your mortgage, and that, that you would be silly just to make it a a single family house. So the house is actually just one room. It's on one floor. Uh, there's a sort of built-in kitchen, uh, sort of like a, a New York kitchenette, you know, where you open the doors and the kitchen is behind them. Uh, and then there's a little built-in bathroom on one side, but everything is in one room. But it's a spectacular room because it has like a 16 or 18 foot ceiling. It's a really Palladian room, even though it's tiny. Um, but on top are two bedrooms, which can be rented either singly or separately, uh, with that, with, with two small bathrooms. Uh, and so it, uh, it's, it's a tiny house, which really accommodates three households, uh, or two or three households. Um, but when you look at it on the outside, I, I included a photograph of the original Villa Saraceno, and, and 
I think it, it's it's just the perfect little miniature of it, except that it's only a part of it. It's the central part, uh, and it's it's also a row house because there's a house on each side. So it's it's not at all a Palladian villa in the country. It's a sort of urban version of it, uh, sort of shrunk and squeezed down to what what Reed and George saw as the essentials of Palladian architecture. It really is amazing. And uh, I think uh, many readers of the book who, like me, don't live in Charleston will, like I did, wind up with a strong urge to go there. Um, thank you very much. This has been a delightful conversation. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. The book we've been discussing is Charleston Fancy, Little Houses and Big Dreams in the Holy City by Vitold Rybczynski. It is available now in bookstores and online, including through the Yale University Press website. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast series as well as the latest from our blog and our authors.